Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey guys, and welcome to episode 37 in the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Johnny FD, and this is Sam Marks. Hey guys, welcome back to another great episode. How are you, Johnny? Fantastic, buddy. I'm, I'm really excited for this week's episode. It's a little bit different than, than what, the ones we normally have. Oh, yes. This one's going to be awesome because I think so many people are going to be able to relate to Dr. Kenyon Meadows. He's definitely a boss. He listens to the podcast and he invests in a ton of alternative investment platforms, which I'm excited to dive into him with. Yeah, so he's an actual practicing uh, doctor. He's a radiation oncologist. So if you guys aren't mm-hmm. familiar with that term, they are people who, I guess, doctors who specialize in tumors and uh, and cancer growth. So what's really cool about about Dr. Meadows is he is a full-time professional doctor while investing on the side, and he wants to share his information about what he's kind of learned on the side, not you know, being a full-time investor. And I think this is going to resonate with a lot of our listeners who have another job, have a nine-to-five, you know, maybe you're not a doctor, maybe you're in another field, or maybe you're an entrepreneur, and you want to be able to invest on the side uh, without having it be a full-time job. Exactly like you and I, right, Johnny? Yeah, definitely. Well, <laughs> definitely neither are Samus doctors, uh, but... You know, it, it does fall into that category where we like things very hands off. So mm-hmm. that's why I'm really excited about this episode. And guys, we want to just take an opportunity here to discuss and review and refresh everybody on the goals and the purpose of this podcast. I guess we always assume that if you're listening to this episode, that you've listened to every episode so far, but we recognize now that that's not the case. Some people are coming into this podcast for the first time, maybe on this episode or five before. So, We just want to make sure that everyone knows that we are not here to provide advice. We're here simply to unearth information, to learn from other experts, to share knowledge and try to empower people to make better financial decisions. And oftentimes that comes in the form of Johnny and I admitting mistakes or trying things and and sharing those experiences with everybody. Yeah, definitely. So if you happen to listen to an episode that, you know, we talk about something, you know, investments that you may not particularly agree with it might just be that episode uh you know give it a shot with some of the other ones you know we try to very you know diversify i think the type of interviews that we like or the type of investment vehicles that we like to talk about are things that are new exciting because yeah if we had just talked about index funds you know low cost index funds you know that would be two episodes and we would kind of just wash (laughs) our hands and just you know forget about them for the next 30 years but even though we, you know, both Sam and I uh, like index funds, we both invest in it. And at least for me, it's, it's my primary investment vehicle. Finding new investment vehicles, especially ones that use modern technology that were not available five or 10 years ago, is super exciting to me. And this is what it almost motivates me to work harder on my business so mm-hmm. I can have more money to invest. Yeah. And I hope that's kind of the goal for everyone that's in this as well. Definitely. And I also think that some people out there believe that you and I are slightly more aggressive than we actually are. So for instance, my in my portfolio, I'm 40% cash and annuities. And I think any advisor out there, any financial expert out there would say that's, you know, that's way too much. But like you said, we just end up talking about the more risky investments more because they are more exciting and more people want to kind of kind of discover them. But I've always said like my annuities as boring as they are, they're one of my favorite investments because 
I don't think about them the entire year. I get a, a paper <laughs> document at the end of the year that says, here it is. You've made this much money and I don't worry about losing the principal at all. And with you, you know, you have significant six figure income that's growing and it's, it's redundant and consistent and you know, it's going to be there tomorrow. So you can take a little bit of chance with the month, the extra money that's coming in and put it into, into different types of investments that you choose. So I don't think either Johnny are, are super aggressive. We just end up talking about a lot of those investments more because that's what people typically want to hear about. And just on a point of advice, like I said, we're not here to give advice. We'll just share our experiences and you guys can, you know, you make your own decisions on what you want to do and, and where you fit and how aggressive you want to be. But a few places that we definitely will give advice are practical matters like saving, <laughs> saving more, spending less, uh, getting started zero to one, because that's where both Johnny and I are most specialized. I would say personal experiences, things like you know, for instance, if we use, use Peer Street and we think we found a way to utilize that platform in the most optimal way, we'll give you we'll give it advice and share experience there. And then also, like I said, all things that we've made mistakes on, we'll definitely give advice on hopefully uh, you guys not repeating and making that same mistake. Definitely. So that I think that being said, I think I guess we can safely vow that neither or Sam are planning a career in financial advisory. So you don't have to worry about that. Um, but we will continue to interview cool guests like the one we have today. So without further ado, Dr. Meadows. And we're back. Dr. Meadows, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, man. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We're super pumped to have you on the show because I think your story is fantastic. And so many people out there are going to be able to, to relate to you. You're true to, to the boss listeners. You're a professional by day and a hustler investor by night and weekends. And I think you've probably explored more of these new alternative investment platforms than anybody that I've come across. So we're really, really thrilled to get your perspective. Oh, happy to give it, man. Happy to give it. All righty. So you started a new blog called thealternativefinancialmedicine.com, and we're going to get into that. And you're also a practicing radiation oncologist. Did I, did I pronounce that right? That's correct. Yes. <laughs> so you got to give us a little bit of background on all that, how you got into medicine, and a little bit of your backstory on when you started investing and, and what piqued your interest there. Well, yeah. Um, well, to, to get on the medicine side of things, um, you know, definitely loved life science and, and biology and everything uh, going through high school and college. And when thinking about some practical way to apply that, you know, medicine seemed to be an obvious choice. And then once I got into medical school, you know, going through the various clinical rotations and whatnot, you know, getting exposed to oncology and cancer patients was, uh, you know, a real eye-opening experience for me. I, I really enjoyed interacting with those patients. I really uh, appreciated, you know, how uh, thankful they were for anything you could do for them, you know, even, mm -hmm. if, even if their outcomes weren't, weren't all that good. And uh, so that, that really uh, attracted me. And, you know, the radiation oncology, it tends to attract people who have, you know, more of a quantitative background, you know, a lot of physics involved and it, it is very uh, computational. And so that, that fit with me too. That's pretty interesting. So that was going to be one of my questions was, do you think, you know, practicing medicine and what you do professionally gives you a different view of finance than someone who, who might not be? Well, you know, I didn't think so at first, but as I've started to 
branch off and explore some of these other asset classes that um, honestly, you know, weren't they, they're not they're not pushed and, and not uh, and not exposed to you mm-hmm. through traditional financial planners. I, I guess I did take more of an analytical eye uh, towards them in terms of, you know, performance metrics and, and things of that nature. So, yeah, I, I definitely, you know, pretty quantitative uh, in my investment analysis of things. Gotcha. And I believe you're an East Coast guy. You're living in Georgia. That's correct. Yes. St. Simon's Island. Yeah. And have you always lived there? And did you go to school there as well? Uh, no, I, I grew up actually in Ohio, um, uh, Northeast Ohio, and went to school in, in Cleveland, uh, Case Western Reserve, undergrad and med school. And enjoying a little bit of the warmer weather down south, although it still gets pretty cold in Georgia for a Florida boy for me anyways. I mean, compared to Ohio, man, this is this is easy. <laughs> I like easy. it. So how did you get from becoming a doctor and then starting to explore finance? And now you're taking it, it seems like a, a, to the next level and a lot more seriously. But take us back through a little bit of your initial kind of attempts to become an investor and start investing some of your, well, you know, your passive income or not your passive income, your, your investable assets though. Yeah. And, and actually there's a tie in to medicine with this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we all can remember the 2008 uh, market downturn um, that we know was you know, largely a real estate led phenomenon, but it spilled over into the the stock market. And uh, I think the, the market was down about 38, 40% uh, at its lowest back then. And I actually ran into a colleague of mine, more of like a mentor, Mm -hmm. uh, a gentleman that had inspired me to go into medicine uh, as I knew his son during undergrad and med school. And it was like 2010. Right. And um, he's in his in his early 70s, you know, practicing general surgeon. And as we got to talking, he told me now he'd always been a very heavy stock market investor. okay, Mm -hmm. And he told me that he actually had planned on retiring in December of 2008. And as you remember, the market crashed around October or so around then. And it really represented a really big hit to his portfolio. And he basically wound up having to keep working another couple of years until the market recovered sufficiently for him. And, you know, when he shared that with me, it got me to thinking about investing in different assets that while they might, you know, have, you know, certain degrees of risk and whatnot, at least they wouldn't be correlated with the stock market and maybe not subject to the very very, very precipitous drops that the mm. stock market could have too. So that actually was my got got my mind churning a little bit on the whole alternative asset thing. So you went through the 2008 crash. Did you actually have any of your assets invested at that time? Yeah, I think I think up to that point, um, you would, I would I would describe myself as maybe a fairly typical investor, meaning. Um, you know, had, um, you know, 401k and whatnot through work and, and most of my, um, disposable money. Yeah. I, I invested in the, in the market. Um, and I, and I thought a pretty diversified portfolio mm-hmm. I actually was actually was pretty heavily into oil and gas too. <laughs> and that was <laughs> happened there. So yes, uh, I think I was, I was very traditional up to that point. And what happened during that time? Were you able to kind of weather that storm and hold on to your investments or did you, did you sell things at the wrong time or anything like that? Yeah. Now, you know, fortunately, uh, with my age and everything, I'm relatively young. And so I knew that, yeah, selling would be, you know, the, would not be very good. So I held on and, and indeed, as we all can see, you know, things have bounced back. Uh, mm-hmm. It's taken a while for sure. Um, and that's okay for, for me. But, you know, when I, when I, when I thought about myself, projecting myself as my older colleague, like if I was in my 60s or 70s, yeah. maybe count, counting on that 
that big nest egg and to see it, you know, go down like that, that wouldn't be cool. <laughs> so, yeah. And I can't, even, yeah. I can't imagine. I'm, I didn't know too many people that, you know, were that age and, and got stung that bad, but it's scary, right? Because sometimes these markets, they don't recover in one year or two years. So if you're, if you're your buddy in your early seventies and that happens and you're, you're hev- heavily into stocks, you know, and I know in the Great Depression, it took some like 25 years for the for you to be able to gain your principal back. So that's pretty scary stuff. So I guess that was scary for you to see a close friend and, and kind of a mentor go through that experience. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, that that got me prompted to start looking at other assets. And because the alternative asset space, you know, it's kind of fragmented and there's no I mean, and, and it's so varied you know, there really wasn't any particular person or anything like to guide me. So I just started kind of delving into things on my own, really. Yeah. And in 2008, I think it was a much different environment than it is now and because technology was still, you know, it was it was there, but it was relatively young. A lot of these platforms hadn't even broken yeah. ground yet. Uh, I think a lot of them were probably in the works from a, a technical development standpoint, but not certainly not mainstream. So what? Mm-hmm. how did you, you know, how did you start looking into these things? What was like your first step and, and maybe well, the first I- thing that interests you? Yeah, well, you know, intuitively, you know, we, we all know about real estate, right? And mm-hmm. and I hadn't I didn't have really much exposure to real estate other than um investing in some REITs, uh, which we know are kind of essentially like sort of like real estate stock as it were. Mm-hmm. Um but but I didn't have any any exposure to owning any kind of physical property anything like that. So, that was my first foray and just started asking around about people who owned rental property and uh and then ironically, my first foray into any sort of real real estate investing was actually more on the private lending side. As, as your audience may know, you know, when, when when real estate entrepreneurs, small ones, say, for instance, you know, they look to like flip a house. And we all remember the, the frenzy of the house flipping shows mm, uh, yeah. a few years ago. They're still on. <laughs> I, right. still, I still see like billboards and right. all types of commercials. They're making a comeback for yeah. sure. Well, a lot of times when somebody would go to try to finance a house flip, um, for the most part, a bank or a traditional finance institution is not going to extend the, the sort of short term loans that they need. And mm-hmm. so they oftentimes would come to um, in, individuals who had uh, chunks of capital and could float them short term, high interest rate loans. Mm-hmm. And so that was my very first foray into any type of alternative uh, investing. Uh, I was getting connected with uh, some gentlemen that, that flipped houses. And so w- once I got a little taste of that and, and and saw the returns, which could easily be, you know, double digit type returns and they're in a relatively short duration. And these loans would be anywhere from six to 18 months. Mm-hmm. Um, that just sort of that, that sort of whet my appetite for my my alternative investing style going forward. And so I began to look for other opportunities that could generally fit that that vein, you know, high yield and relatively short duration and and mostly debt type stuff. That's really interesting. So how did that initially happen? Was that a local it's like a local broker that you're dealing with or was it somehow over the internet or enabled by technology? Yeah, you know, definitely started in the in the offline world cuz like as you said, uh, you know, at that time a lot of the uh, tech, tech technology platforms that allow you to do this stuff online uh, weren't there. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the, in terms of uh, how the private lending works in the offline world, it's very much a networking thing. You know, I, I went to like my first 
real estate investors association meeting ever and and then kind of got introduced to some networks and people and 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 did it that way so very much an offline thing and was that was that overall a pretty good experience for you was did it all work out or were there any negative or bad deals that that came through that yeah um there there were some things that didn't go quite according to plan uh, again uh to reflect back on the on the flipping houses show we, we mm-hmm. we've all seen episodes where things don't they don't sell in the in the timely manner that people um, project, or maybe not for the price that they that they expect. And so, yes, I certainly have had some situations where the projects have gone uh, over the time limit, and we've done things like extensions and, and whatnot, and we've mm-hmm. had to cut prices to to get the to get the house sold. And and but as the lender, you know, the nice thing about being the lender, you're you're you get priority in terms of your interest payments and everything. And it's the it's the flipper or the rehabber that might might take it a little bit if they have to sell a little at, at a lower price. So it's a very protected position when done well, private lending. And that, that was that was an attraction to it. That's great. So our first I and mean, Johnny and I's first experience in private lending was through Lending Club. And I, I know you also use Lending Club. We can get into that in a bit. Uh, and one of the immediate turnoffs for us was, as we've seen some people in the boss lounge, like we're making we're making loans and immediately within like a week of extending that loan, the people are filing bankruptcy. And we're like, how does that even happen? Right? How is the vetting process so bad that your loan goes out and a week later it's in, it's in default. Like it, it, something seems wrong there. So, you know, and then only recently since then we've got into secured lending, which, you know, via Peer Street and other, other platforms. So it sounds like what you were doing was, was secured and that was all enabled offline. So I imagine, you know, how did you even come across that that contract? Did you have to have an attorney look it over? How did you make sure that that property was actually secured, uh, or your loan was was actually secured by that property? Right. The first time through, you definitely want to, want to assemble your team, which which certainly includes an attorney to look things over. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, when you look at when you think about it, you're essentially acting as as a bank for this uh, rehabber or flipper. Mm-hmm. And so what you want to make sure is that the property that you're acquiring, number one, it has a clean title and you want to be in what they call first position, meaning you have the first lien on that property in case you need to take it back or repossess it. OK. Mm-hmm. And you, you have to have all that spelled out. And then the other thing, too, is you want to make sure that uh, you're also protected from an insurance perspective in the off chance during the during the time it's getting rehabbed. I mean, there could be a fire or natural disaster. Somebody working in there could get hurt. So you want to be insured for both like liability and fire mm, and that yeah. kind of thing. And so, yeah, so it's a it's, it's a little bit of a checklist. But but once you get used to it, it's 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 a very repeatable process. Got yeah. it. Yeah. So I, I had a question about the people that are actually borrowing this money to rehab the houses. And it's a similar question for Pure Street, which I've never asked them, or any type of lending like this, where the lender can receive upwards of double-digit interest on loans that may be 12 months, 18 months, what have you. That seems like an excessive amount of interest to pay as a borrower. Is there a reason that they couldn't just go to a bank and get a loan for, you know, Four percent or something is this? Is that something that banks typically won't touch? Do you know you know anything about that? Well, well, yeah. I mean, when you when you look at the underwriting model for for a a, a bank when it comes to real estate, mm-hmm. you know, they're really it, it doesn't fit at all with the the rehabber or flippers model. Mm-hmm. Number one, the banks want to only loan money 
uh, a certain percentage, you know, maybe like up to 70, 80 percent. You know, you have to put your you know, 20 percent down on, on, under normal lending standards. And they only want to lend that certain amount on the on the present value of the house. Hmm. So if you've got a house that needs a ton of work, the bank's not going to lend you the amount of money that you need to rehab that house and, and, and bring it up, bring its value up significantly. They're loaning on the as is amount. And um, and yes, they're looking to loan to owner occupants who are going to, um, you know, reside in that house. Gotcha. They that as a, that's a lower risk situation mm-hmm. than loaning it to uh, a flipper who's not going to live in the house. And it's, it's just an investment for them. And so it's a higher risk thing than the banks typically want to do. Gotcha. Because the bank's even though it's secured, they just don't want the hassle of having to take over that house, sell it, get their money back, right? Right. And, you know, and that also speaks when you talk about the interest rates that are paid. Um, like I said, it, double digits are, are, are easy. You know, 10 percent, 12 percent I've earned easily there. I, I know people that that charge 15, 18 uh, percent for these loans. And it can all make sense if the potential profit margin mm-hmm. on the on the deal uh, is there. And that's where it comes. And that's where working with somebody who's seasoned, who's done a lot of them, uh, who knows the market really well. And then also pretty key, they either have their own rehab crew or they're very they're in very good with a lot mm. of the uh, the actual rehab people that can get the work done quickly and under budget and all that. So the, for, for me, as the private lender, the main due diligence, in all honesty, is sort of vetting that person up front. And, and once you once you feel confident about it, you, you know, you, you tend to stick with them and fund multiple deals as they as they work out. So I guess the flippers really just they have that business model down and they understand, OK, I can afford a 15 percent interest on this over the course of 14 months because I know I can rehab this house and flip it for 40 percent in that basically that same time period. Exactly. Exactly. Now, you know, the reason we got into so much trouble back in 08, um, you know, with, with the banks being so so um, easy with credit for mm-hmm. people to buy homes. You know, for a while there was a steady stream of people to buy these inflated homes on the back end, and mm. you know, it, it induced a lot of you know sort of weekend warrior type flipper yeah. people who got into it. But it was it was so easy because the prices just kept going up. You know, so it was easy. But uh, the real pros, you know, they they can make money when you know in a, in a down market or sideways market. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, Dr. Meadows, I'm I'm almost getting nervous because I'm thinking about just in the last couple of weeks, how many commercials I've seen from TV, radio, billboards, all in the South Florida area for flipping homes, seminars, courses, you know, like it almost and the last time I can remember seeing that was probably 2006, 2007, like building up to the crash. Right. It almost yeah, seems like it could be an indicator. Well, right. You know, I saw an article, I believe it was either in uh, New York Times or Wall Street Journal last week where they talked about that flipping levels are getting are, are approaching uh, sort of the 2006, seven ish uh, uh, levels. So it's, it's certainly heating up. Wow. And that's something to, that's something to keep in mind for very, sure. Very interesting. And I got to go backwards for a second because I, I thought you had mentioned before that you had invested in Puerto Rican bonds back in the day. Oh, well, well, yeah, uh, that that's jumping back to, uh, you know, part of my stock market um, uh, portfolio mm-hmm. uh, downfall, as it were. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, bonds, as is pitched to us, you know, are, are relatively safe. And when you look, certainly, 
historically and, and over time and the percentages that really fail. It, it is really, really small. But, yeah, I just happened to um, have bought some Puerto Rican bonds and uh, they went down on about half in value in terms of their face value. And they, they may they may default or may have defaulted. I used to see several articles about that. And I just I just stopped looking because it depressed me. So, I'm like, <laughs> so you still own those? Yeah, I do. Man, I, I don't really. Like, bonds are like they this. They're just so unstraightforward to me, but I guess the only reason a bond would fall half in in face value is because of the the default risk, right? Right. Yeah. I, I guess Puerto Rico is is pretty broke as a country, and, mm-hmm. and they're threatening to default and everything. And you know, th- these things were pitched to me as uh, you know, uh, I think they were you know tax free and and everything. Mm-hmm. And so, but yeah, it's uh. We'll see how that winds so, up working out. So, so as long as you hold them to maturity, then you should get your your face value back plus the interest. But the, I guess the the risk but, is if it yeah. <laughs> if they default, <laughs> right? Well, right. I'll give you some encouraging news. I was just down in Puerto Rico. It was absolutely a beautiful, seemed very well run place. I almost feel like it's going to become a state at at some point because everything there was totally American. You 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 go there. They welcome you as an American citizen. Everyone speaks English. It just, it feels like America. Um, so I don't know. Hopefully that yeah, gives you some type of, <laughs> some type of encouragement. But. And, you know, just to, um, to kind of continue on with the, uh, the, the private lending mm-hmm. piece of things, the, the next foray, as it were, was into some rental property. And the rental property thing was interesting to me because I really came into that with a bias that, well, you know, I think it'd be cool as an investment, but, you know, the notion of dealing with like tenants or, or management and that kind of thing. And I knew there were property managers out there that 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 dealt with that. But I still had a had a pretty big um, negative bias towards doing it. Yeah. And actually, one of the lady, one of the one of my partners who I would loan money to um, on the private lending side, you know, portfolio, a rental portfolio is something that was a big part of their investment uh, strategy. And she really kind of held my hand uh, to say, look, you know, if managed well and, you know, I'll take care of it and kind of make it sort of a turnkey situation. Um, why don't you try it out? And so that was the next thing, uh, getting that first rental property. Okay. So you you basically moved from almost peer-to-peer lending in a sense. into oh, pr- private lending. Private yeah. lending. Yeah. Private lending into purchasing a physical property, a physical investment property. That's correct. And how was that? How was that experience? Well, I can I can honestly say um, the, the the whole key with that. I mean, of course, you, you want to buy it right in terms of the the, the right price to, mm-hmm. to rent ratio, and you want to buy it in a decent neighborhood, and and all of that. That that kind of goes without saying. Um, but really, if you're going to have somebody make it, as they say, a turnkey experience where it's really a very hands off kind of thing, mm-hmm. your prop your property manager is really everything. And I really spent a lot of time, you know, doing business with this person and getting to know them a full year before I, I, I got the property. And um, and we've subsequently done more. And it really has been a very hands off experience, which has been great. You know, I don't get called, I don't get called about anything except, you know, big issues, you know, tenants moving out. Uh, do we want to raise the rent? You know, you know, that kind of stuff. But in terms of day to day type of things. Not none of that. And what's the model there, Dr. Meadows? Do you do you locate a property that you think would be, you know, present good yield and be a good investment? 
find a property manager and talk to them about taking care of the property? Or do you look for a property that's already being managed as some type of rental and try to acquire that at that point? So it is almost just taking over an investment property. Well, you know, there, there, there's this segment of, of real estate companies out there called turnkey rental companies, right? Mm-hmm. And they market themselves principally to investors who are busy professionals and, and other uh, endeavors, and they want to own rental property, but they, they don't want to have to do any of that stuff, not, not sourcing the property, vetting it, acquiring it you know, doing any of the rehab that needs to be done, like none of it. They basically want to buy a rental property that has been, you know, gone through all that steps. The tenant is ready to move in. And so there's rent coming in. And at that stage, that's when you purchase the property from this turnkey provider. And most of the good ones will also provide ongoing management for you. So that's the route that that I went. And, uh, and it's been such a good overall experience and investment and everything that actually have written uh, an ebook about it that actually a sample chapter Mm -hmm. from my book on on the turnkey rental process because that that's i've I've really been pleased with that that's great you'll have to share that with us so we can include it in the show notes for all the listeners uh so what what do you look for in terms of when you're finding these properties do you look for a certain yield and do you target a certain type of location or is it is it all all just kind of opportunistic yeah, you know, most of the providers, they will have a specific type of niche property that they're used to acquiring and used to managing. Um, you know, some of them are a few turnkey providers, you know, do do more high end stuff. Uh, some do lower end. And I've kind of targeted uh, what I consider to be kind of, you know, modestly priced uh, single family homes in working class neighborhoods. Amongst real estate investors, they, they, they have this, you know, A, B, C, D, uh, F category yeah. of neighborhoods. And they say you want to aim for B level neighborhoods that those are the best, you know, a nice mixture of, of rentals and property owners, middle class folks, you know, good to decent schools, that kind of thing. So I certainly aim f- for that. And, you, you know, we tend to um, target three, three bedroom, two, fa- two bathroom houses that are going to appeal to a family. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to single family rentals, one of the advantages, say, for instance, as opposed to doing like a multifamily or an apartment, um, renting to a family, they tend to stay a lot longer and, and turnover is your, is your biggest cost with this with this process. So that that's what I aim for. Wow, that's a really interesting point that turnover is the biggest cost. And that was also something that we was brought up in the episode we had with the landlord where he said, always go for the two bedrooms instead of the one bedrooms because the two bedrooms stay a lot longer. Mm-hmm. And I guess that, that just means families, right? So that's yeah. that's really yeah. interesting. So what, right. are, wh- where are you at now with your physical properties? How many and is that something that you want to continue going forward and making a bigger part of your, your investment portfolio? Yeah, um, definitely want to continue to build over time. Um, uh, later this month, we'll we'll get we'll acquire our seventh, and um, you know we're we're acquiring them at a pace of you know one every few months. Wow! Actually, um, I in order to leverage uh, some other folks' money, uh, I actually got some some friends, family, and um, and that, and those types to come along with me and provide me with some private money to do some of these uh, acquisitions. Actually, oh, so it's almost so, like a little fund. Well, in a way, the friends and family fund, in essence, yeah. Okay, cool, <laughs> very cool. We're looking forward to reading that that book. Then yeah. uh, it's really interesting stuff, mm-hmm. and I want to hear more about 
some of the things, the other alternative assets that yeah. you're investing in. It seems like you're you're pretty keen to continue in real estate in different different manners, whether it's be, whether it be REITs or physical property or or some yeah. of these other kind of crowdfunding sources. Right. Well, see, I I view the I view the rental property and I view the private lending, uh, the offline private lending. I, I view those as really two of my core staples that that really will be uh, the foundation uh, of my financial portfolio and investing strategy. But on the other side of things, then then I started to get into the online lending platforms, which, as you alluded to, you know, many of them weren't even around until the uh, passage of the uh, the Jobs Act in Mm -hmm. 2012. Okay, that allowed a lot of the. investment crowdfunding to come online. And so once that happened, I was a pretty early adopter on platforms like some of the real estate crowdfunding platforms, mm-hmm. uh, small business lending platforms, and, and that kind of thing. And that's really been interesting because you know what these platforms allow you to do or, or the deals they allow you to have access to it's pretty incredible for for an individual investor because you know prior to these to these uh, sites being around you would have really had to have cultivated uh, a relationship with somebody in the offline world yeah. and really had to be connected to 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 participate. And the fact that you can just, you know, log on and 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 and, and invest relatively small sums of money in some of these deals uh, for again, for high yield, short duration is it, right down my alley. And do you have a preference now versus you mentioned the offline versus the online private lending? Do you have a preference or how do you how do you balance it? Well, you know, the, the, with the online thing, ultimately, there's certainly a, a degree of l- less control. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you're really counting on the underwriting and uh, due diligence of the platform. And so I, I always think that it's going to be a rel- the amount of money uh, that I think is appropriate to do that with. It should be much smaller mm-hmm. uh, as a percentage of your overall portfolio. But in terms of the convenience and everything, I, I, I love it. Yeah, I, I love it. Yeah. So you think with like the offline, you you mentioned you believe it's a little bit safer. You have a little bit more control. Is do you think that's largely because you can cultivate more of a relationship with somebody locally? Absolutely. Got Absolutely. It. Yeah. Cool. So what what platforms are you using now? I'm very interested to hear. Well, uh, in the in the real estate crowdfunding space, Realty Shares is is probably one the one that I have the most uh, involvement on, and then some of the other big ones that have been around, you know, about since 2012, uh, places like Patch of Land and Realty Mogul. Mm-hmm. Those are those are three of the bigger real estate crowdfunding platforms. And besides offering the the same sort of short term debt opportunities like I do on the offline, you know, some of them offer actual equity where you could, you could actually buy a little fractional piece of, uh, of a building and be a part owner. And so that's, that's kind of unique. Now I haven't, I haven't delved much into that because that's a much longer term commitment, mm-hmm. but the fact that it's there again, is just uh, represents a, an, an incredible uh, opportunity for more people to, um, to, to, to get a piece of that uh, asset class. So the equity investments, let's say through yeah, through any of these platforms, I guess, they're slightly more risky than the debt. Is that correct? Well, you know, in general speaking, they say it's it's less risky to be in a in a first lien position or have or, or have that first mortgage on a property. Like mm-hmm. you're in a safer position because you have the first claim on that. Um, so yeah, I think in general debt is considered safer. Um, equity or, or partial ownership 
is considered more risky, but at the same token, you get to share in more of the upside in terms of like if the building appreciates and, sure. and things of that nature. And there's some tax advantages too to whatever you know whatever distribution or, or money comes off of that that equity ownership. Uh, it's it's a it's a more tax advantaged return. So there's certainly some advantages there, but the the time horizon when you look on on these platforms in terms of how long they expect you to be committed to the to the project, you know it's kind of in that anywhere from like three to seven year type of deal. Yeah. And so you know that that's a bit in terms of my safety. Um, uh, margin or, or comfort zone. It's a bit long for for like an online platform type of offering. Yeah, I think especially for new investors when they're taking their first poke at this stuff and getting used to the online technology enabled lending, it, it's it's a long stretch to try to put money in for three to seven years. So I think it's much better to be able to you know tie money up for twelve months. We using that's that's one of my griefs with Lending Club is. You know, a lot of a lot of times you can only, you can only put money in for three to five years, right? Compared to something yeah, like Pier Street, you can a lot of my loans on Pier Street are like nine months, right? Um, right. So you always have money yeah. coming due. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and of course, the other nice thing about these platforms too is, you know, you're you're just a fractional participant on mm-hmm. the loan amount. So if if a if a rehabber needs a hundred grand, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna finance him in the offline world. You know, you got somebody's going to come out with that hundred grand, and that that's a that's a big that's a big nut to crack for an individual investor. Mm-hmm. Whereas on the platforms, the crowdfunding platforms, you might be able to put in a thousand, you know, so and just take a little piece of it, but still get that same high yield. Good point. So, in in the offline lending that you do, are you often the sole backer or sole, sole lender? Or are you able to also kind of do that with multiple people? Well, yeah, I've I've done both. I've I've done the, the full funding. And then I've also partnered with people to to do like a half or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you can get us you can get creative in the offline world too. But it's just generally you know one or two people. Um, when it comes, you're talking about on a single family house flip, say for instance. Cool. All right. So mm-hmm. you mentioned Realty Shares, Patch of Land, which I I've not heard of. I'll check that out. And Realty mm-hmm. Mogul. Is there yes. are they all pretty much the same? Has your experience with them been generally the same? Do you have a, a preference in any of those? Yeah, I'm, I would say they're all industry leaders. As you know, uh, there's been a lot more platforms that have proliferated over the years. Uh, these guys have been around for about as long as you've been able to be around, uh, tail end of 2012, early 2013. So they have a track record. I don't have a yeah. I, I think they're. I think those are all very good platforms. You can't go wrong either way. Realty shares is kind of the most diverse in terms of having debt and equity. Patch of land. I believe still they're strictly a debt platform. Okay. Okay. And so, that, so they're, so that, so that's really good for me. So I know every single offering they put up there is going <laughs> to debt. And then, um, realty mogul, uh, mixture of debt and equity. And they, they have relatively larger investment minimums on there. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other sites, you know, you can do, you know, more like 5,000 or below, uh, Pat, um, I'm sorry, realty mogul tends to be more like, 15 or 20,000 for a minimum. Mm-hmm. So that's something that's a little different about them. So Dr. Meadows, you're a very busy guy. You're a doctor by day. Does this stuff take a lot of time? Do you have any type of, of way to automate or, or mechanize it so that, you know, it doesn't absorb all of your, all of your nights and weekends and finding well, new deals? Well, uh, unfortunately, um, well, at, at this point, 
you know, it, it's it, things are running pretty smooth. But, you know, it took a lot of time up front to 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 learn about this. Mm-hmm. So uh, I thank God for for podcasts, because that was a nice way to sure. uh, absorb in some of this stuff. Um, if I had to point to another, you know, very good resource for people in terms of learning about some of the lending platforms specifically, um, there is a there's a conference called the Lendit Conference, mm-hmm. and there's a website called Lend Academy, and uh, it's run by this gentleman named Peter Renton, and th- this it is the Cadillac you know meeting of online lending platforms, and I actually. Um, uh, went to their annual meeting uh, in April uh, of 2016, and was one of the few, you know, non-industry professionals there. Cool. And I got a chance to meet some of the heads of a lot of these uh, platforms. I got a chance to uh, talk to some of the people that like Lending Club. I got to meet the head of uh, uh, Realty Shares and Patch of Land. You know, so that that was very very cool. Um, but yeah, it took a long time on the front end in terms of learning about them to get comfortable. And now, now that I've been doing it a little bit, uh, it's, it's, it's much easier. <laughs> so you've been doing this for quite a bit of time. You've, I guess, invested in several different deals. Have you ever had any go sour or, or become problematic? Yeah, um, I have. There, there's actually two uh, crowdfunding platform deals that, have, that are in the process of being worked out. So you know, when, when, you're, when you have the first low lean position and, and a lender on a property, you know, if the person basically can't do what they say they're going to do, either sell it or refinance or do what they need to do to get your money back, you have the the legal right to you know, foreclose and, and take that property back and then liquidate it to get your original money back. And so and that's one of the one of the values that the platform brings. Mm-hmm. So on a couple of different platforms that that's happening and, and just to put it in perspective, I've probably done about maybe 30, 35 real estate crowdfunding deals Dang. over the years. And, and we've had like, and, and these are two that are looking like they're going to go through the foreclosure process. And, you know, we get, we get updates from the platforms. They're keeping us informed and they feel confident that, you know, they, that we'll get our original capital back, you know, and we've been getting interest payments, you know, for the length of the loan too. So in terms of having something go totally bad where, where I lose some principal or some capital, not yet, but there are a couple of deals that are going through the foreclosure process. Cool. So that's basically two of 30. And yeah, yeah, you have to keep us updated on how that goes. I guess it's so it's, it's up to the platform to take control of that entire process, right? So yeah, see, you know, the platforms. So while, while you might make maybe 10 or 11% on a short term loan or something like that, they're, they're going to charge the, the real estate entrepreneur and they, they call them they call them sponsors when it, on these mm-hmm. On these platforms, they're going to charge the sponsor, you know, typically maybe like a percent or so of the deal that the platform is going to keep and, and their job. And that's their money for, you know, curating the deal, doing due diligence and doing all the you know back office stuff in terms of accounting and, and being able to, you know, use a use a, a nice slick uh, interface online to mm-hmm. make these investments. But also one of the values they bring is that, yeah, when things go bad, you know, they've got the lawyers, they've got the legal team and, you know, and they got to go through the foreclosure process and get your get your money back. Yeah. And hopefully they have the relationship with the sponsor to try to make it a, a seamless process and not not a nasty one. Right. 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 Exactly. And exactly. So what what actually happens in in the case like in the case of one of these defaults, I guess it's the sponsor who is borrowing the money 
mm-hmm. to rehab, let's just say rehab a house. They, t- they borrow the money, they rehab the house. Maybe they can't rent it or they can't flip it. And then they don't have the cash to continue paying the interest on, or they don't have the principal. They don't have the cash to pay back the principal and the interest or, or one of the two. Exactly. Exactly. So I know in the one deal, you know, one of the planned exits was for somebody else to refinance this person out at the end of the crowdfunding loan. And then that per- and then that that person or institution basically fell through. And you're right. So now uh, we the, the platform essentially is going to take it back um, and, and sell it. Um, and, and that's and one of the one of the key things with private lending. Right. Um, you know, whatever the proposed value of that house is, they call it the after repair value. Uh-huh. You always want to leave a nice cushion in there where you don't you don't want to loan money all the way up to whatever that value is. You actually a, a typical amount would be the loan to maybe 65 or 70, 70 percent of that value. Mm-hmm. So you have that cushion to which to reduce the price down on the house. Should you ever have to take it back and sell it and still be able to get your, your entire principal back, you know, and 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 but that you know that the, the profit margin that the that the rehabber was counting on gets wiped out, but mm-hmm. hopefully you know you can be still made whole. Right. So I think that's called a lot of places I've seen that is LTV loan to value. Exactly. Loan to value. Exactly. Okay. So you mm-hmm. try to target like person. I guess that the higher up the loan to value, let's say it goes into 90 percent, you can probably right. expect a better yield, right? Well. Yeah, you, you'd want yeah if you're going to loan that much, um, you, you'd, you'd want to ask for an even higher interest rate. Mm-hmm. Although again, most most of the the guys that I know, they're pretty strict about that 70 percent range. Mm-hmm. You you, you want to have the 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 entrepreneur, the flipper, the rehabber. You, you want to have them in it for a nice chunk, you know? Yeah. And I guess that, so that protects you both in case we hit some type of recession and housing prices go down, or it's that buffer that if you need to, to get rid of the house, to liquidate it and get the, the, uh, the lender's money back, you mm-hmm. can sell it a little bit under market value and be able to still get all the, the principal out of it. Exactly. Got it. So, you know, so the real estate crowdfunding has been great. Um, a category that doesn't seem to get as much, um, as, quite as much play is the uh, the business lending. Okay, mm-hmm. and um, and I, I'll just tell you, you know, the yields in there uh, can be comparable or even a little bit higher than a, than a private uh, real estate loan. Uh, it is not unheard of to be in the 15, 18, even twenty percent range loaning money to established small businesses, and I emphasize that that term established. There are Basically, you know, bank community banks and uh, and whatnot, they've really um, cut back on the amount of lending that they're doing to to uh, to small businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that happened as a result of the the mortgage crisis, you know, a lot of smaller banks went under that 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 were that were a lot of the primary funders to small business. And there's a whole group of these online platforms that have stepped up into that space and are providing. Uh, short term, high interest loans to to establish businesses too that allow investors like myself to, to participate in, and it's kind of it's very similar to the crowdfunding model in that you know you only expected to, to foot a relatively small percentage of the overall loan, mm-hmm. and uh, and that that's worked out really well thus far as well. So you've been you're actually participating in that as well. Correct. Oh Correct. man, that's see to me that would be scary because I just I know so many businesses that <laughs> right. if they're borrowing and they have you know twenty percent interest on that note, and then if you had to liquidate the business, you know, mm-hmm. to get that money out, it just seems like such a more complicated process than liquidating a you know a piece of physical real estate on the corner somewhere. Right. 
Well, you know, the the platforms that do this, again, they, they developed um, an expertise in underwriting certain types of businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, you know, some of them, they, they like businesses that have, you know, physical inventory that they could um, mm, gotcha. use as collateral, uh, accounts receivables. So, you know, some some businesses, you know, they, they've got they've got uh, revenue kind of coming in on the books, per se, but they're not going to get paid, you know, for 45 days and they got to meet payroll, that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, you can loan on that kind of thing. So, yeah, the business lending is kind of interesting and but definitely worth checking out. OK, cool. So what's a platform that you use for that? Uh, there's a couple that I use. Um, one is called P2B Investor. And that, that stands for like peer to business. I think the P2B, mm-hmm. uh, P2B Investor. And the other one is Funding Circle. Funding Circle. Um, I've heard of that, yeah. actually, but mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not checked it out yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very Absolutely. cool. So, I mean, you're you're investing. I know there's other ones. Um, uh, well, we, mentioned, we mentioned Lending Club that yeah. we're both on. And uh, yeah, that was that was definitely an early one, too. Kind of like yourself, b- because those are unsecured loans. I mean, you're, you're basically kind of just lending on somebody's income and credit score. Um, you know, n- not a whole lot allocated there. And and uh, but 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 nonetheless, it's it's worked out pretty well. Yeah. I mean, I've been on the platform a couple of years and, you know, this earning maybe like 7% or so. I, I'm kind of conservative with it. I know you can you can reach down the, the credit spectrum and loan to people. That's what Johnny did. Johnny did all <laughs> F-grade notes. He was like, this is just going to be my experience. And it started off, you know, it's whatever, I forget what the, they call the score or whatever your, yeah. you know, your, your projected income is going to be. It started mm-hmm. off at like 16% he was making. And oh, it's just, gonna, gonna yeah. oh, it's completely <laughs> slipped. It's down under five. And now Lending oh, Club, wow. Lending Club says, you know, they used to, to, talk about their their yields pretty aggressively and now they're they're talking about their yields like 99.98 percent of people uh make money if they diversify across 200 notes or whatever mm-hmm. and 96 percent of people make more than five percent if they do this and johnny's now under five percent so i'm like oh you're part of the four <laughs> percent <laughs> but mine's mine's also conservative now, i'd say my experience with lending club has been similar to yours whereas overall it's been an okay experience i really hate seeing these loans default, especially after one week or one month. I think that's that's almost there's something wrong there. Yeah. Um, but if the loans hold up, I would say it's an okay experience. My big concern is if we hit a bad patch mm-hmm. in the economy, a lot of these things could just you know they could just go into default you know really quickly. Um, so that's the scary thing is having my, right now. I've, I've been on it for about a year, so that means my my loans are in there for at least two more years. Mm-hmm. So it's just, I'm like, it's almost like weathering a storm. I have to just hope for things to go solid and to get that, you know, six, seven, maybe 8% return. Um, yeah. But I think, yeah, I think there's just better ways to do it. Right. I, I think so too. I, I think so. But, but I, I'm glad the platform exists though, because it's, it's a, it's a cool way to get involved in alternative lending. And, you know, there's no, there's no account minimum. I think you can open up a, an account with, you know, a hundred bucks to start doing it. So, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree totally. And this bit in the business to business lending that you're doing, do you have to be accredited for that? Um, some platforms you do and some you don't say, for instance, funding circle. Yes. Uh, P2B investor. I think yes, but there, there are, well, let, let me, let me think now there are some where you don't have to be, but I'm not familiar with them. At the okay. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, we, maybe when we put together a list, that would be interesting. Cause there's so many non-accredited investors that want to participate even with, you know, 2000, $5,000. So mm-hmm. uh, I know like Fundrise is able to do non-accredited. I'm not sure, I guess because they're considered a REIT, they're able to get around, uh, some 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 rule. I'm not sure if it's in the jobs act or something else, but we'll try to put together a list and that would be really interesting. Um, 
for everyone to be able to look at and compare. Yeah. So Dr. Meadows, what, a couple other ones. Uh, you mentioned that earlier you, that you were going to be doing Forex trading soon. Well, you know, yeah. Um, I, I discovered you guys podcast probably, uh, about a month ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously with, with, you guys are right down my alley and I just basically devoured all your episodes in like a week. And, um, yes, the, the gentleman, uh, Mr. Jimerson, mm-hmm. uh, listened to the podcast and got in contact with him and yeah, you know, start a, a small position there and, and sort of see how that goes. And I know that's, that's, that's a very, uh, you know, very speculative kind yep. of risky thing. And so that's, um, you know, something to be entered into, um, you know, carefully, but yeah, yeah we're going to, try it yeah definitely cool well we'll we'll have to compare uh charts on that and our performance and everything else and i, f- I find uh they send out a weekly newsletter it's fun to read like all these things even if you know even if you're not going to participate in the platforms if you join their mailing list i always just recommend this to other people if you if you just join their mailing list you'll learn so much about the platforms this type of investment just by reading and, and getting exposure to some of the deals that that are going through those platforms Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Cool. So Dr. Mose, I just want to wrap up with a few questions. This has been an awesome episode so far. Like I said, you, you just have so much experience in this stuff, maybe more than anybody out there. And I think this is really fantastic stuff and, and all these type of things that, that we're looking to unearth for, for our own investments and, and for our listeners for sure. So where do you stand now with, you know, with your, with all of your investments? Do you have like kind of a, a breakdown, just a high level breakdown of your allocation across different asset classes? Well, well, I would I would easily say you know uh, somewhere like sixty to seventy percent of it is actually between the the the, the physical property mm-hmm. and, the, and the offline private lending. Um, as I said, that, that's kind of the foundation of things, and the rest of it, the other sort of thirty percent or so, would roughly be represented with you know probably about ten percent still like traditional uh, equities kind mm-hmm. of a kind of a holdover from before <laughs> coming back <laughs> yeah and then that last twenty percent would be some of the um, you know the, the specialty online lending mm-hmm. platforms and with that specialty stuff do you really like that as you know as an investment or do you are you doing a lot of it just for the experience and the know-how and kind of discovery mode? Well, I think it started off that way. And, and, and again, the, the relatively modest amounts of money that you could start off doing it with, that, that was certainly um, provided a level of comfort to try it out. And as with anything, over time, um, you get more comfortable with it. And I you know, continue to learn about the, the business models, what, what kind of what's happening in the, in the world of alternative lending and, and whatnot. So you just get more comfortable over time. So I do think that they will be a, a staple going mm-hmm. forward because I really think, you know, and this is kind of going looking further down the down the road. I think people that are that are younger than us, um, Sam, the, uh, the you know, the millennials coming up and this and that, I think this is going to be common stuff for them eventually. Mm-hmm. You know, some of these platforms really mature and get really big and, and kind of break through into kind of popular consciousness. Uh, I think a lot more people will, will be doing this down the road. Uh, I agree totally. It's um, I think almost to a scary level because the millennials are so used to just being on the internet all day and playing with a keyboard and mouse. Whereas the baby boomers, I, I can't get my parents to put money into to robo advisories or any of these things. Not that I would necessarily advise them to, but they just don't trust it. They want you know they want the brick and mortar. They want to go sign a piece of paper and shake a hand with somebody and have that you know that relationship in place. And I t- 
totally understand it. That's, you know, that's their generation and, and how they've been, you know, used to doing things. Um, but there's just, a, there's a lot of opportunities for these platforms to grow and give access to great deals that people wouldn't normally have access to. Right. Mm-hmm. So with that, what, what are your 2017 plans for investing? Do you have anything new on the horizon that you're looking forward to doing? Uh, in terms of new stuff, now I, I think I'm going to continue to to do what I'm doing. You know, the, the, again, the the forex position that that represents definitely something uh, different and off the beaten path. Um, you know, the biggest initiative of this year is actually, you know, written a book mm-hmm. uh, basically chronicling um, my my journey into this and, and started a blog myself. And so that you know, kind of nurturing that and, and and trying to get some some visitors there and, and that kind of thing. That's 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 a big push in 2017. And what's the name of the book? Uh, the name book's called Alternative Financial Medicine. OK, and so that's the name of the blog, too. Yeah. Dot com. Right. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's correct. Cool. Well, we'll have to share maybe a sample chapter or definitely yes. whatever we can do on the show notes and we'll, sure. we'll push people through that. That stuff's really interesting. And one last question. It seems like you're really you like real estate in all different forms, right? You like getting that that kind of monthly check or that quarterly check. You said you invested in REITs. You're doing the crowdfunding stuff. You own physical properties. Do you, do you like your current allocation there? Or is there something that you're trying to, to push more into in one of those? No, you know, I think I think when it when it's all said and done, um, the the physical property ownership, I, I think you can't beat it in terms of control, um, tax advantage, you know, safety th- mm-hmm. throughout a um, a host of financial uh, conditions in the in the bigger economy. I, and I think that's why so many you know folks have built wealth uh, through through that physical ownership of property. It's just. Uh, I think when you look at all the different dimensions of it, it, it's the best thing. So that that ultimately, like when it when it's all kind of said and done, and uh, you know, done with medicine and 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 done sort of hustling and investment, <laughs> you know, you ho- I hope to have you know a, a portfolio of, of income property that is going to be the thing that's going to sustain me in terms yeah. of like retirement and that. And it's legacy yeah. too, right? It's something that Absolutely. you know can go down from generation to generation with ease and and uh, and pride. I would say yes. And do you want to? continue working in, in medicine for a long time? Or do you, do you see yourself becoming more of a full-time finance guy? (laughs) Well, you know, I I love medicine. Uh, I love the patients uh, and everything. So yeah, I, I envision this investing as just, uh, you know, it's it's just a way to have taken uh, a level of responsibility and, 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 and trying to get my, my financial literacy up and, and, and taking control of things. Uh, But ultimately, you know, it's, it's a big passion, uh, project. Uh, medicine is, is still um, the number one priority. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that's what I vision. Great stuff. So Dr. Meadows, I think that's a wrap. We really appreciate appreciate you coming on. Guys, we'll leave links to all of Dr. Meadows' new financial asset links, show notes, all types of cool things that he's working on with his blog, his book, and therefore, and Dr. Meadows, please keep us posted on a lot of the new stuff that you're doing. Very exciting stuff and amazing knowledge base and experience that you have. All right. Thank you for having me on, Sam. We'll see you later. Man, I really enjoyed that episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Meadows, for coming on and taking you know time out of your, out of your busy doctor schedule to kind of share that knowledge with us. I learned a ton from this episode also. It's funny because I keep on these these episodes that have a lot of value bombs. I continue finding myself during the recording writing down notes and then I'm like, oh, I forgot I can, I can listen to this a thousand times. I don't need to take notes. But uh, but it's always a good sign when you're writing things down in the episode because it's always, it means you're always learning a lot, I guess. And 
Dr. Meadows, obviously a very smart guy, as you'd expect. And he figured out a lot of this stuff on his own, right? Through trial and error. Yeah, definitely. You know, and I just actually just looked him up uh, as, you know, to see his doctor profile. And, you know, he looks pretty impressive here as well. I think he's been practicing for like 20 years. So it's, uh, you know, pretty cool that not only does he have time, does he have, you know, time to be a oncologist, but also learn investing and share his knowledge from from it on the side you can kind of just tell by listening to to his interview he just really likes sharing this advice and -hmm. i think this is kind of the same with it i I think every single guest we've had on so far it just seems like people just really like talking about you know what they've learned what they're doing they want others to succeed as well it's really like an abundance mindset where nobody's holding this variation thinking that if other people are you know doing poorly then you know, or, or do well, that, that means that they're going to do poorly. I, I think everyone listening, and, and maybe it's just our guests that we have and our listeners, but everyone has a great mindset where they just want to openly share good information. Definitely. And I think just because we're living in somewhat of a unique time period, I wouldn't say it's it's totally unique to history, but it's so fresh. Like 08 is so fresh on everyone's mind and people got really hurt in 08 and they saw people that they're close to get hurt, their parents and 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 mentors and and other people that were getting closer to retirement. I think Dr. Meadows' story, where he was watching someone in the same position as him, but 40 years his elder, go through a financial collapse, you know, a couple of years before retirement. That's that's going to stick with you, and that's going to change the way that you want to do things. And I, I think that's part of the reason he wants to learn a new and better approach doing this stuff. But then he also wants to share it because. You know, why, why watch any other, other people get hurt, other productive people that mean well and are trying to save for retirement, you know, share, share what you know and, and help everybody, you know, plan and, and take a better approach, right? Yeah, definitely. I think that really hit home with me, even though I'm only 35, so I'm only halfway there. But can you imagine if you were 70 years old and you've saved up and you worked your butt off your whole life, especially in a high stress field like, you know, being a doctor? And all of a sudden, you know, you're getting ready to retire and you can't because your, you know, your net worth is so low because the stock market is on a dip and there's nothing you can do but wait it out. And you don't know if it's going to be two years or five years or 10 years. And you just, you know, you're just in this bad position. And that's just the thing you know, we get in this, this mentality of, okay, if you can just weather the storm, if you can just wait, it will bounce back. But it's important to know that that is not always the case, right? If you invested in in the Japanese market in 1988, 1989, that market's still down. Like you lost money if you're still holding, right? If you invested in in the Great Depression, and it took like 25 years for that money to come back. So if you're on the edge of retirement, you're never going to see retirement, right? You're never going to, you'll literally be dead before that money ever comes back to to recap. So you have to be able to, you know, take a view of history and and not, you know, not put too many eggs in one basket. And I think we learned from Dr. Meadows that now he much prefers rent checks and interest payments to, you know, stock market gambles or kind of hopes and dreams. Yeah, definitely. I think that's why I've I've been so bullish on things like Pier Street lately is because I like getting, you know, that interest check where even though i know it'd be nice to have something that could potentially grow more you know either through equity you know or investing more in the next funds and hoping that will grow but 
I like having a certain percentage of my total investment in things that I know I'm going to get a guaranteed return, you know, whether it's 8% mm-hmm. or, or 10%, just having that, you know, it's like that nice little paycheck. It's, it's a good feeling. Yeah, definitely. It was, it was really great to hear also his experience in backing deals through these platforms that have actually gone into, I wouldn't say default. Well, yeah, you could say default, uh, but have, have basically not gone the way that, that he expected. Right. And to see what that process is like and to hear that, you know, as far as he's concerned, it's still going pretty well. Right. He's not he, they haven't lost money. The platforms are doing what they can to recoup it and make sure that they they hold uh, or return the principal to the different lenders. So, you know, it's, it's like one of those things. If we invest in Pier Street for the next five years, there's a very good chance that some of those deals will go into into default. I think they've only had one so far, but you know, it's, it's almost inevitable. So it's nice to hear what that experience is like and how we might be able to better plan uh, to hedge ourselves against that type of event. Yeah, I can definitely see that. So I think at the end of the day, you know, diversification really is key. Where and this is the other reason why I don't want to just keep everything in an index fund. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think some people might suggest just leave it in, you know, in VT, all in VTI or, you know, maybe like a mixture of some like small cap uh, index mm-hmm. funds, some, some normal ones. But at the end of the day, I don't really want a hundred percent of my, you know, my investment in just index funds. Cause to me, even though it is diversified over, you know, uh, a ton of different actual funds. It's still the whole stock market. So if I yeah. don't have some money in something like real estate, I don't feel as as safe or as diversified. Yeah, agree. And speaking of rent checks, I received an email yesterday from Fundrise. Did you get it? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think I checked. Well, well, we what, ended what up getting. Well, they paid out dividends for the quarter for both the income and the growth REIT. Which I, you're invested in the growth rate, right? Yep. Uh, actually, I have both. Okay. Yeah. So, well, check your email, man. We're supposed to celebrate these and go buy beers once we get paid out. Yeah. So tonight, I actually opened a bottle. So I'm in, I'm in Taiwan right now. I don't know if you know that. Mm-hmm. No, I don't know. Cool. <laughs> I came here for uh, my cousin's wedding. And tonight's my last night here. So while sing karaoke, we decided to go down the street to the, the bottle shop. And we bought a bottle of Kavalon whiskey, which has been voted the number Ooh. one whiskey in the world. Ooh, I've heard beating that. Beating out I, I, Scotland and Japan. Yeah, I've heard Taiwan's whiskey scenes on uh, really like on the uprise right now. Uh, I haven't tried that one, but you know, it wouldn't be such a bad thing for you to bring back a bottle to Chiang Mai or wherever you're traveling next for me to give it a go. You know, I'd be very happy to bring it to you, but you're not in Chiang Mai. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have a little gift awaiting when you get back, you know. Oh, is it? I just just leave it in your room, <laughs> let it age a bit. So, uh, where are you, by the way? I am in Tampa, Florida, and I'm about to jump on a train at the end of the week to head back—not back, but across the U.S. to Los Angeles. And I'm going to spend—I'm uh, going to spend the next three months in California. I'm going to give it a, ch- a shot. I've just. Love San Diego, love LA beaches, and I'm going to spend that month in Tahoe, uh, learning, okay. attempting to learn how to ski and snowboard better. Nice, I'm excited for you about that. Um, I'm still kind of up in the air about where I'm going to be next. I, th- I want to learn how to ski, but my buddy Chris, who I'm traveling with, is currently selling his business, mm-hmm. and 
he has the issue where the business is worth too much money, which is actually kind of a, a funny um, situation to be in. But it turns out that if your business is worth, you know, because it's a dropshipping store, so mine sold for mm-hmm. sixty thousand, which is relatively easy because you know, not that everyone has sixty grand, but it's something that you know somebody can just say, "All right, I'll buy that." But his is valued at three hundred grand, which mm-hmm. means there are very few people who can actually afford it, and they, they want to do a ton of due diligence. So, yeah, that's a huge headache for him. So, what's the what's the process? Where's he trying to sell it? Like through a platform like Empire Flippers, or or just direct? So, I think he actually tried to list with Empire Flippers first, but his his accounting was so complicated that they just couldn't figure it out and he ended up just going through a private broker he you know he's having these pretty big name people who you know uh are like big players in like the e-commerce space uh looking at taking it over but they just like even them they're like how do you handle 300,000 products and you know like what are you like what are you doing on the back end to juggle all this and what it is is Chris is a big data's guy. He's um mm. he was he was like a data analyst as his job before he started doing mm-hmm. this. So he's used to it. He's like, oh, you just do this and these twenty other steps, and there you go. But for other people, they're just like, you know what? We'd have to hire someone full time to, to manage this. Yeah. Well, I think once you get to that level, there's so much opportunity to to expand your business and product and introduce your own you know your own product line through that dropshipping store, but. I mean, if you can make a min off off selling it, then more power to him. Yeah, so I guess we'll see what happens with him. But it, it, so my travel plans completely depend on whether Chris either sells a store or um, you know is able to kind of get some free time off. So we will cool. see. But uh, I just Good logged luck. into my Fundrise mm-hmm. account, and it looks like I just got paid dividends for both my income and growth re- yesterday. <laughs> But you know what? I, I, okay, so the income REIT looked like it paid out exactly a quarter of what they said it was going to be, whatever, I think it's 11, 11.5% or something like that. It was a quarter of that. But my growth REIT seemed to pay off less, like significantly less. So I need to need to chase them and see what that was about. Or maybe there's a second payment coming. I'm not sure. Does it look like yours is accurate? So I don't really know, to be honest, but it looks like it was half the amount of my October payment. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's I don't know why that is. Uh, I, I I probably have to look into yes, that more. Yes, exactly. It was a half is is exactly half of my October payment. Okay. Anyways, I'll chase them and and see uh, if we can get an explanation. We'll share it with everybody. Okay. But it also but, looks hey. like my uh, growth rate forty one unit multifamily paid yeah. off. So I I wonder what that means. Yeah, no, it's a good thing. It's a it's a good thing. It means they they acquired a, pay, a property and they they paid off the the debt on that pop property and now wholly own it. At least that's how I read it. But it's cool. I love getting those updates, right? I mean, you learn so much of just about just about how this stuff works just by reading the updates. I feel like it's worth the investment anyhow. Okay, so I, I wonder if that means that we've now sold that and we no longer own it, or if that just means we've paid off what we've owed and in the future we're going to get more money for it oh you know we have fundrise coming on the the, the program i think in the middle of february so I'm, i'll start tallying up a, a list and we'll make sure we get all the questions answered so anyways back for um dr meadows if dr meadows if you're listening thanks again for coming on the show that was awesome stuff we have a lot of your material that we're going to link to in the show notes for everyone out there listening he has started a new blog alternative definitely check it out and he's got a book under the same title 
which we'll leave a link in the show notes. And I'm personally excited to, to, to read through because it goes into a lot of this, this turnkey property stuff that I think is really, really interesting and which Dr. Meadows has also done a very good job in his, I think he said he's already acquired seven, at least seven properties in that manner. So great, great work on his end and, uh, looking forward to, to reading through that material. That definitely. What were one or two big takeaways you got from uh, this interview? Um, I like a lot of the stuff that he's doing on, on again on the on the property rental side. I think that is the type of stuff that interests me a lot more going forward. And it, it's the same exact story. Like he got into property and he didn't want he, he wasn't sure about getting into it because he didn't want to deal with the headaches. But then once you found a good property manager and a good system it's become kind of the, the anchor of his investing and what he can, he seems to be the most aggressive as on and, and the most passionate about. Uh, and, and it seems like he's even turning that into a fund. Uh, but that's the type of thing. Like if you, if you can get a system in place, if you can get a good manager, if you can identify a niche of, of properties that you want to target that you're comfortable with, it becomes like a machine. And, that's not what I have in my property rentals. I have, you know, a piece here, a piece there, a piece there. They're all different, um, but I still like them. And I know if I could get it into that kind of mechanized system with trusted property managers and and more lumped together in the same area, I think that's something that I would be very, very interested in. Yeah, I, I definitely 100% agree, which is why if I was ever going to invest in property on my own, it would definitely be a multifamily unit with a single property manager in a single location. And then if I had more money, I would just, you know, replicate the exact same thing somewhere else. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, minimum 10 units, but ideally it'd be something like 40 units or something in, in one building. Yeah. I like it. So any other big takeaways for you? Yeah. I think one you know, really good thing he brought up, which I wish I knew when I first got into investing, especially with things like lending club. When I first started is if you're brand new to this, don't invest in anything. Besides, I mean, so aside from like you know the index funds and things like you you plan on holding forever, for as in um, kind of these new fun or modern investments, don't invest in anything that locks you in for more than thirteen months. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is you're still learning, you're still growing. You don't want to type your money, and you know kind of sit through these like potential mistakes right. when. It, it's going to take you a while to, to really understand. And I think part of re- the education, and I think this is kind of what this podcast is about, is self-education. Because you know these are things we didn't learn in school, in college, you know, then it teaches you know these things. And if I could do it differently, I would have happily have, have you know, uh, put money into things like Landing Club if it was 13 months, especially back then where everything was kind of hot. But now that I'm locked in for five years, it's it's like this kind of tough lesson that I'm like, okay, I've learned my lesson. <laughs> now let me out, but I can't. Uh, while if I had put my money into something that was, you know, about a year or so, you learn your lesson. You're like, okay, you know, that was fine. But now I know what to look for. I agree. Totally echo that 100%. And you know, a, a lot of these platforms now you can do, you can do lending six months, eight months, 12 months. So I don't think there's any reason to tie it up for five years, especially if it's your first go, but you make your own decisions. Um, I just know something like lending club, if you are extending loans five years out, 
I feel like you have a much larger risk because if something happens bad in the economy during that time, that loan is probably going to be a little bit more in jeopardy than uh, than something that's shorter term. So take that into mind. And guys, let's use this opportunity just to recognize a couple amazing reviews. I think we've had 12 reviews in the last week. I mean, they're going crazy. We really appreciate it. We have some super amazing guests coming up February, March, April. It's going to be a blowout. I'm really excited for it. And this is all because of your guys' great reviews. So very appreciative. I'm going to read one right now by Thunder Investor from the USA. Five-star review. He says, great business podcast. Listening to the journey is so valuable. I too have been in the investing game for many years and have been in many of the investments you are reviewing. And so refreshing to hear honest and unbiased comments on the options and your results. It is an exciting times to be an investor. So many options. It's also more critical than ever to be educated because risk is as plentiful as the options. I'm looking forward to future podcasts and the specialists that you will uncover. I raise my glass of my favorite wine to both of you, Thunder Investor. I wish he had told us what his favorite wine was. (laughs) For me, it'd be two buck Chuck Chow Shaw, and that'll put the rest (laughs) of the money into an investment. (laughs) There you go, buddy. (laughs) So, uh, I want to read one as well and actually give away a $25 Amazon gift card. Uh, we, we selected this guy by random. Uh, this is Peter DM from the UK. My favorite investment podcast, five stars. This is my favorite investment podcast. Sam and Johnny have unbelievably entrepreneurial guests who talk about investing investment products. Everything is explained in an entertaining and easy to understand way. I used to find investing confusing and warring, but this podcast makes it interesting, understandable, and exciting. <laughs> uh, Are you trying to do this with it? I, I'm trying to do it as much as I can do it. <laughs> also, check out his, the private Facebook group. Lots of information there. So thank you, Peter, so much for that five-star review. We are going to be sending you a $25 Amazon gift card for your efforts. And if you guys want to enter to win, just uh, take a screenshot of your review and send it in to invest uh is it hello at invest like a boss info at info at info sorry info at invest like a boss.com or if you want to follow the instructions just go to invest like a boss.com click on bonus and you have the instructions there all right guys i hope you enjoyed this week's episode and we'll catch you next week with a fresh one all right see ya Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.